Someone asked me uh, why the sermon wasn't up this week, and uh, I told them I was busy at the Capitol, but I got a new lectern, and I decided to stop wearing my buffalo hat, so anyway. All right, we are in the uh, book of Philippians. We're going to be looking just at three verses tonight, so you can turn there in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, verses Uh, 9 through 11. We began our study of Philippians by considering what it was about the church that drove Paul, their founding pastor, to pray prayers of thanksgiving for them. And so we considered the cause of Paul's prayers. Paul was moved to joyful thanksgiving because, number one, they remembered him. They financially supported him. They were never ashamed of him, even though he was a controversial uh, figure. Uh, they never outgrew Paul. Secondly, they participated in the work of the gospel. They didn't ride the pine. That is, they stayed. They didn't stay on the sidelines. They were actively involved in the advancement of the kingdom of God. And lastly, they themselves continued to grow in faith. Their Christianity wasn't just a season of life. It was the real deal. In short, these three causes for prayer can be summed up by the words of the Apostle John, And he writes, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Paul, though in chains, is joyful because his disciples are walking in the truth. That is what makes a true minister of the gospel happy. That is one of his main sources of joy. And this point can be made even more obvious by considering the inverse. What is it that keeps a minister up at night? And Paul says in Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, uh, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Night and day, he warned them with tears. He didn't want to see his disciples led away into fruitlessness and perhaps even destruction. That was his fear, his main concern. In Galatians 4.11, he says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Then again, he says uh, a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians uh, 3.5. For this reason, uh, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. And our labor would have been in vain. So his fear is that his work would come to nothing, not just because he worked hard, but because his work is that of the human soul. It's a matter of eternity. Therefore, he warned them about being led away or falling away. This is why he's so joyful about the Philippians. They heeded his warnings. They listened to his teaching and they weren't just maintaining. They were growing. Now, keep that in mind as we consider the next three verses, because I'm going to return to it. So today we'll look at the content of Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. Verses 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless your word. May we have humble hearts ready to receive it and bear much fruit to your glory. 
In your son's name, amen. Thank you, sweetie. Um, Paul says, in this I pray, in the beginning of verse 9, there are two reasons uh, Paul lets them know he's praying for them. First, it's an expression of his love for them. In verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he follows it up with, And this I pray. His praying for them flows out of a deep affection he has for the Philippians. In chapter 4, Paul says, My beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown. He wants very much uh, to be with them. He wants to see their faces, but he can't because he's chained up in a prison. But prayers are never chained. And I'm not being dramatic um, at all. You know, Paul can still be a force in their life from afar by praying for them. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe you can be a force in people's life from afar by praying for them? I asked my question, I asked that question to myself last night. Do I believe I can affect the lives of others, especially those I love, by praying for them? Now, of course, on paper, I believe it. Theologically, I believe it. But functionally, do I believe it? What does my actual practice say about my theology of prayer? There's always two types of theologies. There's what we confess with our mouth and what we demonstrate with our lives. And growing in the faith, being sanctified, is having those two things slowly align, little by little, coming in alignment with what Scripture teaches. And ask yourself that for a moment, though. What does your actual practice say about your theology of prayer, your beliefs about prayer? How often do you pray for other believers that you can't see? Many of us have friends, brethren in Christ, that we are separated from by hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And if you're like me, you miss their fellowship and wish you could be there for them as they go through life. Think of those people. You haven't seen them for years. And you get together at some park. Hey, I'm passing through town. Can we hang out? And it's just like, like yesterday. You're together. You're clicking. There's this oneness that we have in Christ. It's, it's amazing. It's exciting. And you think of them. And you wish you could have all your friends together in one place. We've moved around a lot, and I'm sure you've had a lot of friends move around. One good thing about heaven is all my favorite people will be there. I'm excited about that. But we're not there yet. And I can do something more than liking their status. I can pray for them. So do you pray for them? If you love them, you will pray uh, for them. Prayer is the greatest resource you can give a friend. It's the greatest resource. I am not worried about money when it comes to this church. It doesn't really enter my mind almost at all. I've got to be careful because I don't think about it. Like, wait a second. We've got a budget, right? Um, but I am worried about prayer. Are people praying for us? Are the people in the church praying? I know our success depends on prayer because our success depends on God. And if it doesn't depend on God, then this is an endeavor of men. And it is sure to fail. Spurgeon said, prayer does move the arm that moves the world, though nothing is put out of gear by our praying. The God who ordains the effects that are to follow prayer ordain the prayer itself. It is part of the grand machinery by which the world swings upon its hinges. Paul knew this, and his practice followed his knowledge. You must do the same. Thank God that there are those that intercede for us. May God grant us a love that leads to prayer. The second reason that Paul lets them know he's praying 
is to provide them with an example. Paul has a habit of telling people uh, what he prays for them. He does it just. Uh, he doesn't just do it here in Philippians. He does it all throughout all his other letters. I was able to find at least seven different occasions where Paul relates the content of his prayer to a particular church or group of churches. One of the biggest reasons people cite for the dearth of prayer in their day-to-day life is that they don't know how or what to pray for. And that shouldn't surprise us. Remember that the disciples request, requested of Jesus that he teach them how to pray. And he did it uh, in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, our Heaven, right? That's one you should commit to memory. Uh, eventually, in this church, we'll recite things like that. Our fear is some of you might be freaked out and think that it's like a Roman Catholic thing. It's not a Roman Catholic thing. It's a Bible thing that we want to commit these things to memory so we can pull from them. And we'll get there in time where we'll recite things like the Lord's Prayer, certain Psalms, or even the Apostles' Creed or whatever. But that's something you, you commit to memory. And so Paul, being like his master, teaches by example. He tells them what he prays so that they will emulate him, not knowing uh, what to pray for, will no longer be a problem for them. They'll, they'll know what Paul prays for. And let's get to the meat of Paul's prayer. And may this inform the way you pray for one another. He prays that your love may abound still more and more. And that means two very obvious things. <clears throat> your love is imperfect, first. It's incomplete. No matter how far along you are, you have not arrived. You're, you don't love as you should in all situations. Matthew Henry says, we are imperfect in our best attainments. I remember once someone had been critical of a pastor I cared about. They didn't think he had handled something correctly, and maybe he didn't. But when he asked these people that are criticizing him, what would you have me do? Their reply was that, well, my practice is to follow 1 Corinthians 13. You know the love chapter? And that's where they lost me, okay? What a, re- like, a remarkable lack of self-knowledge. Their practice is to follow 1 Corinthians. Look, we, or 1 Corinthians 13, we should all aspire to have that sort of love, but if you think you're anywhere close to that, you're deluded. And let me prove it to you right now, and I need someone to raise their hand. I need a volunteer. Who wants to volunteer? I'm going to prove it. Who's Hudson? Okay, great. My son. Good job, boy. Um, <clears throat> all right. I'm just going to replace the word love from 1 Corinthians 13 with, with your name, and tell me if this describes you, and I have kind of the edge here. I know you. Hudson is patient. Hudson is kind. And he's not jealous. Uh, Hudson does not brag, and he's not arrogant. He does not act unbecomingly. Uh, he doesn't seek his own. Hudson is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong sufferer. Hudson does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Hudson bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Hudson never fails. Is that you? Is that you? Not yet? No. So, or do you have some miles left to your journey towards loving as you should? I do. Second. And here's the good news. Uh, Even though your love is incomplete and perfect, you can grow in your love. More and more, Paul says. Your love can actually abound. 
God doesn't just start a work in you and walk away. He continues to work in you to make you more loving. In conversion, God replaced my cold heart, uh, stony, uh, he replaced my cold, hard, stony heart with a warm, fleshy heart. And I now love. And I didn't used to. But I haven't attained. This is a prayer I still need. I need more love for God. I get distracted by the world. I get tempted by other false gods. I need more love for my neighbor. There are people that I struggle to love. Some aren't very lovable, but many I just don't like. Like whoever, whoever came up with this whole thing that I need to renew my warranty for my car and call me, whoever that guy is, I, um, I don't like. But remember the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. I need more love. I need it to abound and grow. Do you. There are some professed believers that seemed that seem never to question themselves. They never doubt themselves. There's a sort of confidence that they have that I find quite unsettling. They seem to always think of themselves as more loving than other believers. And that is a dangerous place. Now, if you hear a sermon like this and at the very least start to question the state of your love, you're probably okay. Then you'll ask God that you, your love might abound more and more. And you won't be offended if someone offers the same prayer on your behalf. You'll say, yeah, yeah, I need more love. Thank you, dear brother. And one more thing on this, though, there is a opposite danger, and that is to be complacent with the amount of love you have. I remember some years ago, Emily and I were heading towards a third uh, child, which it seems like seriously like child's play now. We're, we're seven into this. Uh, and we were hanging out with some old friends who still, uh, who had and still only have two kids. And the discussion turned to the number of kids we're going to have, and I said I wasn't really sure, and I said probably as many as God gives us, which we've decided is seven. Um, <laughs> we'll see. I said that before with six. But um, <clears throat> anyhow, the husband says, I don't think I have enough love for three kids. Because they had two. I don't think I have enough love. And I quipped, I don't even have enough love for the one. But God provides. And he does. God will bless you with more love than you ever imagined. If you ask, you must pray. And ask for more love. We must do this as individuals, but also corporately as a body. And I have been to loveless churches. Some are cold in their orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a word that just describes um, that they actually have right belief. They subscribe to the, the big ideas of Christianity, the main doctrines in the Bible is what that word means. And others are just cold. And that mustn't be East River Church, right? We, we'll unplant a cold church. We'll chop this sucker down. That's where we go. We need to abound in love more and more. Every church does. And that's why Paul prays it for the Philippians and why we must offer up the same request. Now, he continues in verse 9 that uh, it's in real knowledge in all discernment. The word love has been tarnished in our culture. It is used to describe any kind of strong, positive liking of something. I love God. I love my wife, I love my dog, I love beef jerky. How, uh, and hopefully all those loves aren't equal in their, their quality. A little joke on beef jerky. I saw someone, this is, he says, I don't want to be rich, 
but I want to make enough money where I don't care about the cost of beef jerky anymore. I was like, that's a good standard. That's what I'm going for. Um, but hopefully you don't love all the things equally that you say you love. Um, it should be obvious that not all forms of love are equal. And that's made clear here in how Paul qualifies the kind of love he's asking for. He isn't asking for a blind love. It's a love that is controlled by real knowledge and all discernment. This ever-increasing love for which Paul prays is to be a discriminating love. That's what he wants the Philippians to abound all the more in. It isn't raw sentimentality. It isn't a warm, gushy sort of spiritual emoting that he's after. You know, fuzzy was he was a God sort of stuff. Um, Matthew Henry warns, he says, Strong passions without knowledge and a settled judgment will not make us complete in the will of God and sometimes do more hurt than good. And I've been in churches where there's a lot of strong emotions, wild emotions that aren't constrained by God's word that lead to a lot of damage and a lot of hurt. And if you've lived in the tri-state area, you've been to churches probably like that. And you know what I'm talking about. Think of the terrible compromises that are committed under the umbrella of love. I can give you an example. I am the eldest of three boys. Uh, We grew up quite poor. And our family was pretty dysfunctional. My father, at various points, struggled with drunkenness and gambling. He would tell you that. Uh, And though my parents identified as Christians, there was uh, little explicitly Christian about our life. Like, no prayer. uh, Never. Like, we didn't pray around the dinner table. We didn't pray when someone was sick. Um, Not at all. There was certainly no Bible study. And uh, we rarely attended church. I can think of a couple times of going to church when I was young. And I remember my Catholic neighbor asked me what I was. And I said, what do you mean? He said, what, what do you believe? And I was like, about what? <laughs> you know, like, what are we talking about here? Can we just play, we're trading bas- or baseball cards, Dell Strawberries for Roger Clemens, you know. And he said, well, do you go to church? I'm like, well, I don't go to church, but I think my mom's a Christian. So I think maybe I'm a Christian. I don't know. But I didn't even know what that meant. I remember when someone told me about Good Friday. I'm like, what is wrong with Christians? The greatest man ever is murdered and you get a day off from school? I mean, I'm thankful for the day off, but what? Because I didn't know about him dying for sins and the resurrection. I had no concept of this stuff. Um, So it probably wouldn't surprise you uh, that we all got into trouble with the law repeatedly. I was arrested several times, expelled from high school in my freshman year for mooning the principal and then throwing a chair at him. Uh, and getting drunk at parties, I got in a lot of fights, and I failed out of most of my classes just because I, uh, I wouldn't do my homework, because who cares? I'm just going to go in the military anyway. But then I heard the gospel, and God unfroze my heart, and it all changed. And that's a, another, another story for another time. But it wasn't true for my brothers. Uh, they got pulled heavily into drugs and alcohol abuse as many. You know, we were, I always just tell people we were poor white trash. That's exactly what we were. Hillbilly elegy, that sort of stuff. And they got pulled into all that. And they never finished high school. <clears throat> and both were often in trouble with the law. Thankfully, all the all my stuff happened when I was still a minor, but not true for them. Uh, and then they both had long stretches where they were homeless. During those stretches, they would repeatedly call and ask me for money. And they usually would ask me to get them a hotel room uh, because there's like a snowstorm or something, you know. And, uh, and I would agree because they were my little brothers and I didn't want them to freeze to death, but it got excessive to where I was spending hundreds of dollars per month, uh, on my brothers. And my wife had to tell me to stop 
And Emily doesn't tell me to stop things too often. And I got really angry. I'm like, well, I would take care of your brother. You know, I started accusing her of being unloving. And I was absolutely wrong. And I had it totally backwards. I was not loving my brothers. I was enabling their reckless, sinful lifestyle. My actions came from a sincere love in a sense, like I, I wanted to care for them. But it wasn't constrained by knowledge and discernment. We were just keeping them in that place. And Emily was loving them by cutting them, cutting them loose, you know. And if you come from a family like that with addiction and brokenness, you know how hard it is to discern. You know, when, how to, do I shut the door all the way or do I keep it cracked open? Sometimes you just have to cut those people out. Because when you're coming, those houses, what they're, those households are like a whirlpool. Just going down and you're just trying to not get sucked down with it. And that's really hard. But thankfully I had a good uh, wife, a, a, a true helper from God. And uh, we, we cut them off. Uh, love's not naive. Love's not naive. Love is guided and aimed by God's word, or God's word by the truth. There, there has to be a sharpness, a focus to our love. And that's what Paul's praying for. It's informed by knowledge, not just any knowledge, but the knowledge that comes from Scripture. God's word teaches us what uh, to love and, and what to hate. And uh, there's something called a catechism. It's a series of questions and answers that help you learn theology. And one question says, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Knowledge is not enough. It has to abound in discernment. And it's hard to think of something more lacking in Western Christianity than discernment. It's an all it's an all time low right now. So what is discernment? Well, I, I really recommend the 1828 Webster. I, I love it. It's such a great. Uh, our, our definitions now are bland, and those old definitions are they're sharp. They've got real meat to them. And here's how uh, Daniel Webster defined it: discernment, the act of discerning, also the power or faculty of the mind by which it distinguishes one thing from another as truth from falsehood, virtue from vice, acuteness of judgment, a power of perceiving differences of things or ideas and their relations and tendencies. Discernment is the wise application of knowledge to different situations. People tend to think of discernment in terms of spotting false teachers or false teaching. There's things that people call discernment ministries, Sometimes they're helpful, but a lot of times they're just angry people that like to argue, right? They really are. I've been around them. I'm not against it. Uh, it's good. I was very, I was discipled by Mormons when I first got saved, right? That's like a false religion. Uh, two nice looking guys with name tags knock on my door and they're like, I'm Elder Mesdick and I'm Elder so and so, and we're here to talk to you about Jesus. I became, I'd just been a Christian for like a month. I was like, guys, you're not going to believe this. Two things. My first name is Elder also. And I just became a Christian. No, they always, they won't tell you their first name. But uh, so I met with these guys um, for a year and a half. So I know the Book of Mormon really well, Doctrines and Covenant, Pearl of Great Price. I read all that junk. Um, and then, uh, but I also read scripture. And then there was a new ministry out there at that time on the internet. You know, like I got a meta crawler or dog pile or whatever the weird search engines were back then and found this ministry called CARM. 
Christian Apologetics Research Ministry. And it had stuff on there about Mormons, and I, I started to check it against the Bible. It was very helpful. I'm thankful for that. But there are some people that are just in love with being fault finders. And fault finders, uh, really, if you get into their life, they're, they're almost always a wreck. And fault finding is just a way to, like, to keep you off the, to throw you off the trail, you know, so you won't look at their actual life. They want to talk about the problems everywhere. Um, so, uh, there is much more to discernment than that. True discernment means not only distinguishing the true from the false. It, mis- it means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, the permanent from the transient. And it even means distinguishing between the good, the better, and even between the better and the best. And we are going to need discernment with where we're going as a nation right now. This is, it's not new water historically, like in the millennium, things, nations rise and fall. But for America, we are in some real new territory. And anyone that tells you like they have the perfect plan ironed out, don't listen to that person. (laughs) Because I don't know how how they possibly could. But we're going to have to apply discernment and make, make some hard decisions, good judgment. Generally speaking, discernment is despised by modern evangelicals. And why? Because discerning Christians come off as cosmic killjoys to them. By discernment, they detect that something's up. Something isn't quite right with a claim, a person, or a course of action. And that is seen as negativity, and negativity is to be rejected. No one likes a negative Nancy or a Debbie Downer. Discernment is just written off as being cynical or overly critical. But Paul doesn't do that. He wants their love to abound with knowledge and discernment. God, make me discerning. God, teach me how to use your truth to love people. Help me to protect fellow sheep and drive off wolves. That's a good prayer request. Can God give us discernment without us becoming fault fighters? I think he can. I know he can. Paul then says, uh, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. This verse makes it clear that the love for which Paul prays is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. He wants them to be able to discern what's best. Paul is happy about the Philippians' spiritual condition, but he doesn't want them to become complacent, you know, just to, to you know, level off. He wants them, by knowledgeable, discerning love, to approve the things that are excellent. In other words, he wants them to keep on growing. The continued pursuit of Christ is a major theme in this letter. In chapter 2, Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, but to will and to do to work for his good pleasure. And then in chapter 3, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, 
have this attitude. The word perfect there means mature. So let as many of us that are mature have this attitude. Many professed believers start the race well, only to stumble, stumble more and more as they go through life. And I'm only 40, and I've only been in the church half, a little over half of my life. But I'm getting to the point where, you know, people don't show the reality of their faith for always for a while. And I'm watching people fall away. Some people that I never thought would fall away. And uh, it's, it's a scary thing, you know. And you, these warnings will, will protect you. If you stay, that the, the, like the lines on the road, you're not, if you stay between the lines on the road, you're not going to wreck. So if you heed these warnings in scripture, uh, that you'd stay pursuing, staying active, uh, you'll, you'll finish well. But it's easy for love to grow cold uh, through the distractions and difficulties of life. The Puritans called them crosses and losses. It's easy to lose your first love, just like the Ephesians did in Revelation. Uh, Remember what Jesus said. He says this, I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. And you have uh, persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And yet uh, you do have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus hates things. Uh, notice that the main thing here is that this church had a lot going for it. They knew their theology. They were able to spot, spot false teachers and they won't put up with them, but they have lost their first love. Their Christianity isn't about Christ as much as it is about kind of raw truth detached from a person or a way of life. It's a, I see this happen where Christianity becomes about a secondary thing. Like Emily and I homeschool, and that is a a byproduct of principles that we hold. But that's not the gospel. It won't be the gospel here. We'll we'll check that quick. I am against the slaughter of babies. I hate abortion. I hate it. But that actually is not the gospel either. And the reason I hate it is because God is the God of life, and he says, thou shalt not murder. And if I give that up, then what grounds do I hate, the abor- hate abortion? If I make that primary, we're always, there's this uh, temptation to make Christianity a way of life, divorced from the person of Jesus, away from actually worshiping God. And that's what happened with the Ephesians, right? They knew their stuff, but they had forgotten Jesus. It is theology, the study of God, detached from doxology, the worship of God. That is the danger of loveless orthodoxy. It is something we must pray against. We have to want to grow in our knowledge. We have to. We have to stretch a little bit. Learn new words. I had more $10 words in this sermon than I meant. I usually try to keep it to two or three. But, uh, but we have to want to grow. But we have to... Worship Jesus. That's what this is about. He's the one that, that's what all of this is about. Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is our king who we worship. Paul wants them 
to continue to bear fruit until the day of Christ. He wants them to finish the race well, to finish in a sincere and blameless way. His prayer is that they would not be satisfied with the status quo. Paul is calling them to pursue spiritual excellence, to keep growing. That's what's exciting. It is, that is a, it's amazing how little we know and how much we can know. I mean, it's an ocean, the Bible. It's so deep. There's so many incredible things. That's why I used to always feel like I had to teach everything in a passage. I've been to churches where a guy like, well, I did 500 sermons on Ephesians, right? And they'll do like Ephesians and they'll do like two words. And they'll do this series forever. I can't do that, man. That's not my style. I appreciate that, but I think people kind of forget the major themes of the book when you divide it that much. But there is that much content in there. It is that rich. And you can grow in your knowledge of God. You can grow in your practice. And think who you were at the start of this. Think what God has done. Think how arrogant you were in your youth. Think of times when you're controlled by lust and now can't. Doesn't have, that's, God, that's a work of God. He's giving you new desires. It's amazing what he can do. And if, you know, today you're looking at yourself and you're like, I don't love. I have been critical. I have been judgmental. I lack discernment. If the thing that you're feeling right now is the weight of your failure and sin, repent. God's gracious. He can grow you. And leave that in the past. You know, go after God. Don't be satisfied. Paul's calling them to pursue spiritual excellence. He pursues it, and he prays that they will as well. Why? Because he wants their righteous lives to bring glory and praise to our awesome God. And that is absolutely impossible without prayer. So, brethren, let's make uh, Philippians 9 through 11 a frequent prayer in our life. Let's pray now.